This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. Listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from Men Among Men Stories. Hey. Hey yourself. Within the year, the communist forces of the LNC and Cosmet had overrun the country. Implacable in their hatred of the British who had nursed them, they were determined to destroy all of those whom they considered to be our friends. In the eyes of the new rulers of Albania, collaboration with the British was a far greater crime than collaboration with the Germans. The fury of the new regime was directed especially against those Albanians who, as our allies, had submerged their political differences with the communists in a united effort to win their country's freedom. Such men were marked for destruction because their fighting record gave the lie to the communist claim that the communist party alone represented the Albanian people in their fight for independence. Albania, now the most abject of the Russian satellites, was a totally unnecessary sacrifice to Soviet imperialism. It was British initiative, British arms, and money that nurtured Albanian resistance in 1943, just as it was British policy in 1944 that surrendered to a hostile power our influence, our honor, and our friends. That was two excerpts from the book No Colors or Crest by Peter Kemp. Yep, written in 1958. This was basically an epitaph to the end of a quote-unquote free Albania at um, the end of the Second World War. And basically, again, it, it was written in 1958, so this was kind of deep into the Cold War, so to speak, shortly after the Korea War, um, after the Hungarian Uprising. And as you mentioned, that excerpt was written by Peter Kemp, whose pr- previous book we covered, Always With Honor, or not Always With Honor. Mine Were of Trouble. <laughs> Mine Were of Trouble. I'm getting them mixed up. They're all badasses. Can I, can I just say them. something well, before you say what you're about to say? How impressive is it that we do a military history podcast and it took till episode 15 for us to talk about World War Two, Which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that's honestly kind of an achievement. That we... Yeah, we, a military history podcast takes 15 episodes. To get to World War Two, To talk about the biggest, most important war that everybody tends to talk about. Yeah. I guess it just means we're um, really autistic and we're spurgs. And we maybe don't know what we're doing. Or we're hip and trailblazing and moving away from, you know, topics that are maybe covered too much to look at ones that aren't covered enough. Let's hope it's the latter. Yes. So, again, those excerpts are from No Colors or Crest, written in 1958. I think it was first published then, so... Mm-hmm shortly after the Hungarian uprising, which, incidentally, Peter Kemp, as a journalist, does go over and cover. Um, I guess it's before the Prague Rising, but... Oh, by 10 years. Yeah. But um, this was pretty deep in the Cold War, and he's kind of writing this as an epitaph to free... What is it? I always have trouble with that. Epitaph? Epitaph? Yeah, no, no, epitaph is right. Epitaph? I probably mispronounced that, but anyways, it's... It's a lament to a free Albania, which no longer exists. And Albania itself is a pretty complex country with a very complex history. And that's that's something that that this (laughs) this book does get into it. 
now he's writing this towards the end of the book actually we're kind of starting at the end and, and spoiler alert we win the war but we don't really win the war especially as as we read through this book and and this is something that I kind of gathered from the forward in this book written by your homies over at Mystery Grove Publishing and this this book is not about the uh, World War II you see in the movies no it's, it is it's, not it's something different and I, I was a little worried because I know they're 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 slightly edgier as far as politics goes but when I read that line and I I knew Kemp's history as a ardent anti-communist. I thought it'd be, I was a little worried it'd be like Axis Apologia or something, or very, you know, overtly critical of the Allies or whatever. Uh, and that's not what I found. That's I kind of misinterpreted not what they're trying to say. It, I think what they they really wanted to say with this that World War Two was way more confusing and messy and less black and white than the big fronts of the war would have you believe the western front the eto the mediterranean theater the um, pacific theater the eastern front those are a big part of it obviously but there was there was a lot more going on in these little backwaters like albania for example and basically this book in a nutshell covers peter kemp's experience just after the spanish civil war so it picks off where we had in uh, where we had discussed in our last book, where he comes back to Eng England after meeting um, Francisco Franco mm -hmm. at the conclusion of the Spanish Civil War. Francisco Franco, of course, being like a five foot four dwarf, and Kemp being a tall, lanky Englishman. Uh, uh, apparently, <laughs> Kemp actually was like close to like six one or something. Yeah, so he, he was a tall fine. dude. He's being led, commanded by a man technically who was like, like a child. In terms of, well, I think Franco was 5'2". Like, yeah, he was, he was a tiny guy. He was, he was a, tiny, a shorter fellow. Did I say 5'4"? No, he was tiny. He was like 5'2". He was a shorter guy. Yeah. So, anyways, we, we, we pick off there and he returns back to England. Um, World War II shortly afterwards breaks out. He immediately looks for a place where a man with, with his specific skill set, particularly being a, a platoon level commander... And I think he's... A, is he a company commander in Spain? Okay. I, he might just be like a platoon-level commander, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, I don't think he ever he, rises above lieutenant. Yeah. So, he's like a platoon-level commander, basically. He's seen a lot more combat than most guys in the military at this point, because the British Isles had not been engaged in direct conflict, at least you know, across the English Channel since the First World War, which ended in 1918. So it's been a few decades. A lot of guys are kind of out of practice. At most, there's some guys with a little bit of combat experience in the Northwest Frontier. or Yeah, North, yeah Northwest Frontier. That would have been like Pakistan, Afghanistan. Um, maybe a little bit of work in Palestine, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like Ireland, Ireland, maybe. Ireland, maybe. But not, yeah. not like full-on 19... 30s 1940s style combat where you have yeah. armored air, no just you, you just colonial arms. war yeah yeah just colonial wars you don't have this like combined arms combat that camp had experienced yeah that that this combined arms maneuver warfare that defined the second world war um definitely was an experience of camps in spain and it wasn't really what the british army 
had practiced for quite some time. So for that reason, he's got a very specific set of skills. And I, you know, it's kind of a trope to say that it's like a Liam Neeson thing, but he, he literally did. He, he was a, he was kind of a special guy in a extraordinary time. So he figures he could put himself to good use. He joins what is called the special operations executive, which we will talk about. He, uh, conducts a lot of training with the special operations executive to basically prove himself as a capable operator in the special forces. There's a lot of snags along the way, and that's kind of one of the one of the pitfalls about that I had at least reading this book. He he has a lot of snags along the way. First off, he doesn't serve in a a uh, conflict that was really recognized by the British officially. Yeah, they won't let him they, wear his. They won't let, yeah, they won't let him wear his medals. Um, his to to some extent, like there's even experience like moments later on in the book where other British officers are like, "Hey, we don't want any of that." foreign legion crap in here right referencing specifically some of the tactics yeah. that were employed by them in, well and in he's in a, maneuver warfare and he's in a war now where he's i mean the spanish are not officially an axis power but there are spanish troops who do fight on the eastern front so there's a lot of and this is not just a thing with Kemp. there were a number of people who fought on the nationalist side in spain who then fought on the allied side of world uh war Two and got a little bit of uh, backlash for it because they were seen as, oh, well, you fought on the, the, the German, the fascist side. Yeah, so there was a very, like, gray relationship, I would say, with those that had gone over to the nationalist side. It's not just the nationalists, right? The Republicans were looked on equally with the same suspicion, like you had fought for potentially communist side. Yeah, up until probably 1941 and then sort of... And then things change. Yeah, then Soviet communism Union. becomes a little less... Yeah, well, after... Until after the after war. It becomes the, uh, a little less taboo until after the war. So just context behind that, Molotov, Ribbentrop, Pact, Soviets. Yeah. And the Nazis, Nazi Germany had signed an agreement basically that they wouldn't fight each other and... Well, it doesn't last because they're, they're um, diametrically opposed politically. So it doesn't last, and they end up, they do fight each other, and it's quite vicious, and mm-hmm. we get the whole Eastern Front experience. So until that point, the quote-unquote communists that had fought, and by and large they were like communists or socialist types that had gone over a fight in the Republican side in Spain, um, they're also viewed with suspicion. So Kemp, he's viewed with a lot of suspicion, but he still does his bit, serves with uh, number 6-2 commando, which is a pretty famous unit formed by uh, Major uh, Gustavus March Phillips. Uh, with this, officially, they were number six two commando under the auspices of the Special Operations Executive, nicknamed the um, Small Scale Rating Force (SSRF), and it's one of the predecessor units to the Special Air Service and Special Boat Service that we know and love today. After serving in that unit, he continues on to serve in Albania as a special operations executive operative, working basically behind enemy lines the entire time in a unconventional warfare capacity in support of the Albanian insurgency against the German occupation. And earlier on, I guess, the Italian occupation as well. After finishing up there in his own very interesting Peter Kemp way. He goes 
and parachutes into Poland shortly after the Warsaw Uprising to visit the remnants of the Polish army, home army, and uh, his war, interestingly enough, in a very Peter Kemp way, ends up with him being captured and unlawfully detained by the Soviets until he's able to prove who the heck he is, and he's sent back to England, and the story ends there for the time being. That's the long story short. But um, if you want to learn more about the Spanish Civil War, go back to our last podcast with the Peter Kent. Which which episode? Episode 12. Episode 12. So episode 12. Go back to episode 12 where we talk about Peter Kemp's experience in the Spanish Civil War. That one, by the way, is also a much faster read that you need a little less context for. Mm -hmm. This book, you will need a lot of context for it if you're getting into it. And um, it starts off, I think, before we even talk about SOE and all the cool gadgets and tactics, we got to talk about Albania. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. We it's a big part of the book. It's a big part of the book. It's the bulk of the book. It talks about his experiences as an SOE operator in Albania. So Albania. Albania is a small kind of backwater country, at, at, at least in the 40s. I'm sure it's very pretty and nice nowadays with its beautiful beaches and really cool tourist attractions and Roman ruins and all that stuff. But it's a very ancient place, just lar largely because of its proximity to ancient Rome, I would say. Well, and Greece. And, and Greece, right? It's, it's basically smack dab in between what is the modern day, like, Italy, state of Italy, so the Italian peninsula and the, you know, antiquity of the Hellas well, and, and the Peloponnese, so like yeah, Greece, right? to be to be a bit more correct, it's basically just north of Greece and it's right. just across the sea, the, not the, the, not a long boat ride even in those times from Italy. Correct. Yeah, I think they are. They there is they share a border with Italy. They do share a border with Italy. At least they did in in, in well, uh, the Second World War. So they're 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 adjacent mm -hmm. it, geographically, though. I would say, like in terms of accessing the country, they're they're literally smack dab between these two very prominent historical empires. Yeah, the first tribes, you know, moving past kind of like the Neolithic and stuff. They're the first tribes that we have in written record are known as the Illyrians and when one of the Illyrian tribes that uh, exists um, they're called the Albani so that's kind of where the Al Albania comes from but potentially that's potentially where the etymology comes from by the way I should I should preface this I'm not a classicist I'm not yeah no I'm not, I'm not an expert I. in yeah. antiquity but it is that's it really is. cool if anyone listening to this is yeah maybe you can send us an email about yeah, some of this we're, stuff we're not but, we're not like classical yeah. historians uh, but that being said, just because of how close these Illyrian tribes were in proximity to the Romans and to the Greeks, there's a lot of history that is that kind of crosses over this kind of backwater land. However, it does remain a backwater for a very long time, and things are, even by the time Kemp arrives there, he does parachute in in the 1940s, early 1940s, I think 42. Yeah, that's 42. He drops into um, Albania. Like, it's a very old country. In fact, people there 
that he encounters still remember Alexander the Great, and they claim that their Albanian is the closest uh, linguistic relative of Alexander the Great's Macedonian language subgroup. So it's a very ancient land. Uh, the Illyrians are independent for a long time, fiercely independent, and they do resist the growing Roman Republic. They are eventually conquered after many, many years of resistance by the Romans, uh, just about, I want to say, 20 years before the fall of Carthage. So it's like uh, 160, 161, 162 BC. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a classicist. I'm probably getting that the exact date wrong. But around that time, yeah, just about 20, 20 years before the fall of Carthage. And that's really when the Roman Republic really starts to crazy expand everywhere, right? And and then it becomes an empire shortly after that, right? So like the, around this period, the Illyrian tribes surrender and get annexed by the Roman Empire. They become basically part of the Western Roman Empire and later on part of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, uh, until the Illyrians kind of cross-mix or intermingle with Slavic peoples that cross the Danube in the, in the 7th century AD. So kind of like the hundreds, uh, a few Very hundred, a few centuries after a tale of the Hun really screws things up in the world, a bunch of Slavs, along with many other tribes, start migrating all over the place during this period. The Western Roman Empire falls. There is no Western Rome anymore. There isn't this big unified political power in Western Europe. So all these tribes uh, start waltzing all over Europe, so to speak, and a bunch of Slavs do cross the Danube River. They end up in Albania. They meet these local Illyrian people and either through warfare or conquest or intermarriages, they become slowly their own distinctive people. Very similar to what happened in, say, you know, France and England, where the Celts kind of mixed with the Germanics and created the people we now know as the English or French. Exactly. However, unlike in England, where there weren't actually that many ethnic groups, because of Albania's proximity to many, many societies, not only did Slavs start intermingling with these native Illyrians, there were Italians, there were Turks. There were a lot of Turks. A lot of Turks this and other Slavic peoples that just all started really yeah. co-mingling in this area. Yeah. This and is the part of uh, Europe we should just remind people here that was under Ottoman rule for like three, four hundred years. That's right. So they were, they were under Byzantine rule for several hundred years as well. They're under Roman rule, and then they're under Ottoman rule for about 500 years. There was a there was a revolt in the 16th century that went relatively okay, but still they they weren't fully independent. And a fellow by the name of Skanderberg Skanderbeg actually led that revolt. And for hundreds of years after that, they were still under the yoke of the Ottoman Empire. A lot of aspects of Albanian culture were really repressed during this period, so this kind of burgeoning independent identity didn't really exist uh, for a long time. But in the early 20th century, it started to really emerge, along with other nationalist movements at this time, especially in the Balkans. 
they figured, you know what, everybody else is doing it. We'll do it too. And by 1912, after a series of conflicts with the Ottoman Empire, Albania becomes independent. At first, it's kind of like this weed republic, a mixture of all kinds of different ethnic groups, which, which we will talk about in a moment. Because as I mentioned, there's just so many empires and, and peoples and cultures that have kind of like landed kind of in the same spot. Almost like, because you have, you have like the West and the East really like ending up in the same area, right? Well, what we would classically refer to as the uh, West and the East. Turks, Italians, Slavs, right? Mm-hmm. Probably like some Germans and st- like just random. Greeks, yeah. Greeks. Everybody's just showing up here. I guess they had pretty beaches or something. Everybody wanted to go there. Uh, so they're they're independent by 1912, and um, by as with a lot of these little crappy republics, they're like, okay, we need a monarch and a fellow by the name of Zog, uh, Scandin Scandinbeg. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I'm sorry, but a, a fellow by the name of Zog. Eventually, by 1928, starting as prime minister in 1922, declares himself king. Because he, he claims actually direct descendant from this 16th century Albanian hero, who's a hero to both the Muslim and Catholic populations of Albania. In 1928, he declares himself king. And it actually goes pretty well, because he does it with kind of tacit support from the Italians, who, you know, within a few years are really dominated by another fellow by the name of Benito Mussolini. Mussolini tends to like Zog for the most part, gives him a lot of arms, support, uh, financial support, infrastructure support, everything you can name in an effort to kind of exert his influence over Albania. However, Zog being pretty independent as an individual and wishing for an independent Albania, not wanting to throw off Ottoman yoke just to surrender to the Italians again, becomes a little bit of a thorn in the side of Benito Mussolini. And in 1939, um, actually before the invasion of Poland, which really starts World War II, so a few months before, on Good Friday, 1939, the Italian army invades Albania. And after decades of, well, I guess basically two decades of independence and being relatively stable because they've now moved over to a monarchy and they're kind of really rebuilding something. Modernizing. They're, they're modernizing and they're rebuilding a people that had of that really, by the way, ethnically diverse and religiously diverse people. They're kind of rebuilding them into one national identity under under King Zog. Uh, they they get invaded by the Italians. And everything goes to shit. The the, the country falls apart. There's absolutely no... Zog flees the Zog, country. Yeah, Zog flees within a day with all the money. I know where we heard that before, right? Where, where like a national leader flees with all the money immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, by the way, we're recording this in, in uh, December 2021, so that's why we're a little salty about certain people being their countries with all the money. But anyway, Zog pulls one of those. I mean, what are you going to do, right? Uh a fellow by the name of Abaz Kupi, who's, I think, a, either a lieutenant colonel or a colonel at this time, is like the only resistance in the 
quote-unquote Albanian army that's not really an army at this point. He, he, he ends up fighting off the Italians relatively effectively in, like, one little small portion of the country, but really the war lasts, like, four days, and they're annexed. That's, that's that. It's, it, it, there's this little pocket of resistance where he has basically, like, sailors, merchants... Boy fishermen, scouts. boy scouts, and they, they kind of shoot back at the Italians a little bit, but it's kind of token resistance. In this state, we're not really sure how many Italians died in the invasion. Anywhere from, like, five, which is the Italian claim, <laughs> to 600 Italians, which is some other claim. So we don't know. But, you know, according to the Albanian sources, they, they did their best with what they had, which was not a lot, because most of their military... Uh, power was reliant on the Italians and, and their air power, their naval power, their ability to project in that way. It wasn't indigenous at this point. So, and after, and as well, they, you know, they had, you know, they had fought basically as guerrillas against the Ottoman, but they didn't have like a standing modernized army by any stretch of the imagination. Much like the German invasions of uh, Denmark and the Netherlands, like the army put up as good a fight as it could but it was just washed over by yep. the... so this war was over in about four days and in this complete chaos and mess of a country and situation every little warlord every other little ethnic group started to uh, beat their chest so to speak either to fight each other or fight the Italians uh, and later on to fight the Germans in, in many ways, just out of self-interest because the situation was so chaotic. So th there, there's a bunch of groups in Albania. There's, yes. There's a bunch of... So... And I hope we're going to pronounce these right, but we'll, we're probably not. Yes. So, first of all, I want to uh, clarify this by saying this is what Peter Kemp says in his book, um, Other yeah, Al... We're, we're not basing this off the anthropological source. We're yes, basing this, this off is... the Second World War experiences. Yes. So, yeah, this is... We apologize if this isn't exactly right anthropologically. Yeah, this, is the, yeah, this, is, this is the intel he receives from the SOE. Going yes. But basically what uh, Kemp says is that the major difference in Albania is between the south and the north. And there's a very different society in both halves. In the south the people are call, are what are called Tosks. And... T-O-S-K. Yes. And they are basically um, a collection of Muslim feudal lords called Bays, B-E-Y. That's an honorific title you often see in the Ottoman uh, Empire and in post-Ottoman states as well that are Muslim. Um, and basically it's these Muslim uh, Bays ruling over a mixed Muslim and Greek Orthodox peasantry. It's almost similar to like sort of serfdom in Russia. And in the north you have people called the Gigs, G-H-E-G-S, who are basically socially structured almost like the Highland clans in sort of pre-Jacobite Scotland, where who are a mixture of Muslim and Catholic. And so it's a very interesting, like, there's a lot of religious differences, but also they're subsumed into these sort of differences and ways of life. And in some ways, the country is almost like a medieval throwback. Like, it's, it's night and day compared to nations like Britain or Germany at this time. So to make matters even more confusing, in addition to all these uh, political, or sorry, ethnic and 
ethnic and religious groups, there are also political groups. Yes. Namely, the, the two the two big ones that Kemp does encounter. We're, we're going to get to Kemp, by the way. We just there, There's a lot of context behind this yeah. before we even get into SOE and all the all the cool James Bond stuff. But the there are communist-leaning factions, the most prominent one. Well, there's like a bunch. There's so many little ones. We can't... We, there's, we, we could literally talk about it for hours. But there's a lot of little fighting groups. But the two prominent groups out of this are what first off what are called the lnc um it's the levatsa national clementaire which i probably butchered the pronunciation but the lnc that translates to the national liberation movement and a group called the ballists which uh they, they have another they have a full name that i can't pronounce either but he refers to the camp refers to them as the ballists when he's when he's talking about them mm-hmm. the lnc are basically just Stalinists. Yes, they're <laughs> led by a fellow named Enver Hoxha, who, spoiler alert, later takes over. And becomes a Stalinist. And becomes the <laughs> Stalin-esque dictator of yeah. Albania. Purges and all. Yes, all purges and all. Stuff. He's really not a fan of the church or the, or the mosques. Yes, and, um, and the Ballasts are devoted, kind of right-leaning Republicans that are yes. very pro-Albanian, that are very... Yeah. Hostile to the LNC, and at times they actually do collaborate with the Axis powers if it suits their purposes, mm-hmm. because they recognize, you know, when when this this war ends, another one's probably going to begin. Yes, so we kind of see the same dynamic with the KMT and the uh, Maoists in China. We see this in uh, in Poland with the AK and the uh, is the AJ. Right, um, the, AK, the the home army and the other uh, the people's army. Yes. I don't know the the, the, the Polish. We'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, later. yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. But you see this all over. Yeah, the place in, in the second in, World in War Ukraine with partisans and nationalists, exactly. etc. Yeah, exactly. So this was one of those groups that had that kind of foresight. We're going to probably be fighting each other when this is all over. When there's no more scary Germans and Italians to worry about. So these two groups did not like each other. Mm. And, they're, and they and they 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 tended to get in spats more often than fight the Germans or the Italians that were occupying their country. Mm-hmm. And there are also people who minority faction, but I think we should mention there are also some people who support Zog. Yeah, I was, just about, I was just about to say that there were Zogists. Yes, but because Zog left in such a damn hurry and he kind of lost all his influence in the country, that he actually he he spent quite amount of time I think almost a decade of his life building up that influence because he's from pretty humble origins he does claim like really aristocratic noble heritage but the man himself came from relatively humble origins became king and had kind of sigma grindsided his way to the top of Albania only to be you know usurped by Italians who took over his country in four days so he was he he lost a lot of his because of the fact that he wasn't able to inspire popular resistance and uh, and there was all these other groups that were like waiting for an op like some sort of chaos to be like hey we're gonna you know we're gonna take over the country we're gonna fight the 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 enemy that we have now or whatever like everybody was an opportunist all these political groups all their leadership were were looking at this in a way of. All, again, almost like we. How do you put it? Finish my sentence. No, you walked into this one. You're getting yourself out. 
you had all these little groups that were basically very opportunistic and looking for an opportunity to take over the country, right? So, yeah, the LNC and the Ballasts. And they were pretty backwards people. Now, we're finally going to go into the book. We're going to read something from the book. Just to, I, I think this this little excerpt here, and I, I was I was reading it again last night, and it really, uh, it really, it really, really stuck out in my mind, because it just, and this this is ba if if you didn't listen to any of the rambling we went on about Albanian history, and but by, by the way, if you are like Albanian or whatever, no no offense intended, we're just trying to be as objective as possible about how how crazy the ethnic and political situation was in the 1940s we aren't making Albania. fun of their women like we did with the Afghan podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're we're just we're trying to be as uh, neutral as possible here. Um, we don't want to be like we're not trying to be dismissive or disdainful of of the proud Albanian people and all of their diverse peoples uh, and diverse tribes and stuff like that but uh, that being said there's this excerpt from the book about a experience that Kemp witnesses <laughs> where they're they're you know just for context they're trying to escape these like Germans right he's an SOE guy in, in Albania and uh, a guy a guy sneezes and this guy happens to be an SOE British operative pretending to be an Albanian and he sneezes and he acts in a way that's very characteristically British and is quickly reminded what it means to be a true blue Albanian they had gained confidence since our first furtive entry into Javkov but I was never entirely happy in the streets Hassan Beg had impressed upon me that the German garrison had a most effective counter-espionage service among the civilians. The German soldiers we met seldom looked at us, but we attracted, I particularly, many curious stares and backward glances from Albanians. Only once did our guide show alarm. When Hibberdine unthinkingly pulled out a handkerchief to blow his nose, Ramadan whipped it from his hand, crushing it out of sight in his fist, while Hibberdine, Realizing at once that no Albanian peasant would use a handkerchief, blew vigorously through his fingers, wiped them on the seat of his trousers, and to complete the picture, spat noisily on the cobbles. So that's Albania for you. You blow your nose into your hands. And then wipe it on your pants. And spit, for good measure. That gives you a picture, especially if you are a modern, western type, used to your little Kleenex box. That is 1940s Albania. This is the country we're going to visit. In a few years, we got to take a step back now to 1940, or actually 1939, at the outbreak of the Second World War. Our man Peter Kemp comes back from Spain. As we mentioned earlier, he figures he could do something better than sit around. He he does have a few war wounds from Spain. He, he's injured in the jaw. He's got shrapnel all over his body. He actually does develop, and it's and it like flares up at several times during the course of the war. But he develops gout from just poor nutrition. Obviously, he wasn't eating very well in Spain, and he seems to have drank a lot in Spain too. So he's not the healthiest guy in the world. But he's like, you know what? I have some skills, and he kind of works himself back into shape a little bit uh, because he's he's a well, very well connected, educated 
to, you would argue, arguably an, an aristocrat, an aristocratic type figure with a lot of connections in high society. He's able to convince the British that he is not a evil collaborationist fascist, despite his previous ties to the Nationalist faction of the Spanish Civil War, and he joins an organization known as the Special Operations Executive, which had only been formed in July of 1940. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the Special Operations Executive was formed by basically the merger of three different departments, uh, all of which were kind of in the intelligence um, organization, uh, intelligence and community. The, these are probably older groups that had, like, from the Great War era. Well, some of, some of them were. A lot of them were actually formed in the 30s. Right. But yeah, they were. it was basically these three groups. Department EH, which was formed by the Foreign Office. Section D, which was part of what was called SIS then, but would soon be known by far more famous title, MI6. The, James, uh, James, of James Bond fame. Yes, right? yeah, the, the famous uh, British, I guess... Spy service. Spy service. I guess there isn't a better yeah. name for that. Yeah. And GSR, which was created by the War Office. Uh, these were formed together uh, in uh, officially on the 22nd of July, 1940, um, by a gentleman named Hugh Dalton, who was the Minister of Economic Warfare. And what they were created for, in the words of Winston Churchill, was to set Europe ablaze. They were a highly specialist organization whose job was basically to parachute into occupied Europe and help organize and assist resistance movements and try and make life as difficult for the Germans and their allies as possible. So long before Albania became something that was on the radar of the Special Operations Executive, early on in the war, especially right after the Dunkirk evacuation and the botched Battle of France where the British Expeditionary Force hundreds of thousands of men were sent packing by the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe in a pretty dramatic manner that was in many ways very embarrassing for the Great British Empire uh, they were very concerned about France which had now fallen into German hands at this early stage in the war so that was their, their main focus and in many ways SOE despite all of these fancy-sounding departments and ministers of economic warfare, they were very uh, ad hoc at the beginning. Yeah, very ad hoc. actually, um, just to add on yeah. to that, if yeah. I may, the there's a lot of great stuff written, actually, how World War II kind of changed the, the idea of um, British espionage. Yeah. Before World War II and before the SOE, British intelligence was seen as this very kind of sort of gentlemanly kind of uh, sort of gentleman spy, you know, sort of sneaks in and takes photos of some secret documents yeah, and stuff. Yeah. While in SOE, like, they are thugs, to be to be completely well, uh, what's the, blunt. What's that nickname, the Ministry of Gen Ungentlemanly Warfare? Ungentlemanly Warfare. There is an evolution that takes place right. where they go from this kind of image of sort of the gentleman spy that was very uh, pre prevalent during the Great War, the First World War, to this organization which is ultimately devoted to murder and mayhem, and a lot of the a lot of the guys they recruit, like Kemp, are a little rough around the edges. So to speak, yeah. Mm -hmm. The dagger and cloak and dagger. Absolutely. 
right? So that's the that's the special operations executive. Again, it's very ad hoc, and um, there's a there's a bunch of different subunits and sec- sections in it. You know, we if if you know anything about the Second World War, you've probably heard of the SOE or their sister organization in the United States, the OSS. There is actually an OSS guy that Kemp works with uh, at, at one point in Albania. So there's a lot of like collaboration between them, and, and the OSS obviously is the predecessor to the modern CIA. So a lot of kind of spy history, a lot of gadgets, and a lot of innovation. One of the things that they they focus on in the SOE was uh, the development of this group called Number 6-2 Commando, one of many such Army commando units, I guess Army and, and Navy commandos, which today they're they're kind of perpetuated now by the Royal Marines in the United Kingdom. Um, they are all these like kind of small groups that specialize in raids and small unit tactics. As you said, causing mayhem, the the dagger and cloak and dagger, and then and they they mean business. They they uh, there's no <laughs> there's no gentlemanliness about it. It's stilettos and Tommy guns for them, right? When they when they go in, those are the tactics that um, Number Six Two Commando employs, and and of course Kemp being Kemp, having his particular skill set and his particular experiences, does get recruited into Number Six Two Commando under the command of a Major Gustavus Henry March Phillips, Phillips Phillips, who is a. Uh, I think Kemp, the, the word Kemp uses to describe him is like a, like a crusader of old, right? That, that, now, that's not verbatim exact, but he does use the word crusader in there, like a hospitalier or a templar. He really believes in what he's about, and they do believe themselves to be special. Their ops are defined by direction, direct action rates, oftentimes especially at this early stage in the war, going and conducting amphibious landings via both submarine and uh, motor torpedo boats, MTBs, that were heavily modified for their specific needs with 50 caliber machine guns. They'd go in silently, hop on canoes, canoe onto the beach, climb a cliff or secure a beachhead, kill some Germans, blow things up, and... Get the hell out of there. Get the living hell out of there. Because things got bad for them very quickly if they didn't, right? They, they went in with no air, air support, no artillery, very uh, Great War trench raid style. Mm-hmm. But at this point in the war, with the British Expeditionary Force having come back and the British Army licking its wounds, and, and you know, shortly afterwards, the fall of Singapore and stuff, right? Like, British Empire was not in a particularly good state. They're like, we got to do something, and this was it. Um mm-hmm a small body of hardy men willing to do some very crazy things uh, in a I guess a very um, dangerous very dangerous context with very little chance of survival and uh, you know it was in some ways it was almost like an insurgency it was, it was kind of like insurgent tactics it was just hit and run um cause some mayhem, destroy some enemy infrastructure, right? Keep them on their feet. And uh, lastly, expect casualties, which is the, the reality of the situation. So Kemp goes through some pretty intense training, just 
learning the basics of amphibious landings. Uh, he does do jump training at this point. Gets his parachute parachutist qualification, which is a pretty crazy thing in the early 1940s to do. He gets certified in all of the, I guess, soldiering skills that would be required. He's officially actually badged as a member of the Manchester Regiment. Even though he never serves in regiment or in garrison, he's just... Because SOE, SOE, yeah, SOE is secret at this point. They don't have their own cap badge. They have no insignia. You don't let anybody know, oh, I'm in 6-2 commando. You just, so officially he was a member of the Manchester Regiment. Um, he never served there, but he does get those hard soldiering skills, uh, long ruck marches, and, you know, weapons training. And he also gets the commando stuff, dispatching guys quietly, demolitions, working in submarines, working off the mortar torpedo boats. Uh, and he participates in a few raids with number 6-2 commando uh, under under the command of Henry March Phillips. Uh, it And, you know, the, these, these raids are probably some of the most, like, direct things... I guess the, 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 the most full frontal combat he had seen since the Spanish Civil War, by far. Uh, and there's, there's a moment there when he's conducting a raid uh, in 1942, which basically has an impact for him for the rest of his life. And it's, it's something that he loses sleep over during the war, and you know he, it sticks with him more so than any of the other crazy things that happened to him. And it's it, and it just we'll we'll read the excerpt just to emphasize how intense some of these raids were that he participated in. I sensed rather than saw Rooney's arm go up. Oh, we gotta I gotta pause you there. I gotta pause you there really quick. So we gotta give some context here. They're on a raid right now. So picture this. They've they've landed, they've secured the beachhead, cam cream, blackface, fairburns, sykes, knives out in one hand, grenades in the other, Tommy guns slung over the back. They're coming up on two German sentries. There you go. So carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I sensed rather than saw Rooney's arm go up, and braced myself for what I knew was coming. There was a clatter as one of those sentries drew back the bolt of his rifle. Then everything was obliterated in a vivid flash as a tremendous explosion shattered the silence of the night. The blast hit me like a blow on the head. From the sentries came the most terrible sounds I can ever remember. From one of them a low, pitiful moaning, from the other bewildered screams of agony and terror, an incoherent jumble of sobs and prayers, in which I could distinguish only the words, Nick Gut! Nick Gut! endlessly repeated. Even in those seconds I leaped to action and I felt a shock of horror that those soft, lazy, drawling voices which had floated to us across the quiet night air could have been turned, literally in a flash, to such inhuman screams of pain and fear. Though they were to haunt me for a long time, I had no leisure for such thoughts now. After hearing these guys die pretty miserably and slowly, um, they they kind of bust through this compound. There's a German that kind of... I'm not sure really what the heck he's doing. He's just like wandering in a field and he comes by to figure out what the commotion is and they fire a few bursts of 45 ACP into him and he dies. Kemp, Kemp gets a few rounds off into this guy 
who drops. They go into a building. There's another German on the second floor. And they, I guess they see a shadow and the SOE guys being very highly trained shoot actually like kind of they estimate where he is based off a shadow. They shoot through a wall. The guy in a very dramatic flash fashion kind of falls down the stairs and as he's falling they just riddle him Chicago typewriter style with um, Thompson rounds and uh, they blow a lot of stuff up. By the way, their, mi their mission was to capture prisoners alive and they, they don't leave anybody alive so they just blow everything up and they, and they go back as they as they go back it's just it's so chaotic uh as they're jumping back into their canoe and and eventually back into their motor torpedo boat at, at one point one of the commandos has his uh knife out his fairbairn sykes fighting knife which is a very very sharp double-edged stiletto he has it out. He's just standing there with it out, kind of beckoning his comrades to come back in the boat. Kemp jumps, and as he's kind of jumping and climbing over to get into the boat, lands right on the guy's knife, and the knife goes right up into his thigh and somehow misses his femoral artery. But Kemp's not all too happy, but <laughs> he kind of just toughs it out, and they get back to England they report, um, you know, we didn't capture anybody, but we killed them all at least. Uh, they actually get a kind of thumbs up from Churchill for this because they're like, you know, Mr. Churchill, the mission failed. They didn't capture any prisoners for us, but um, their response allegedly from Churchill was good <laughs> in reference to uh, them killing all the, all the potential prisoners. Anyways, that being said, uh, Kemp is unfortunately wounded, right? So he keeps he has to take some time off um, and, and throughout this period like he, he's getting all kinds of weird flare-ups from stuff he incurred during the Spanish Civil War so there's like gout there's old war wounds and then you know getting stabbed in the leg by one of your buddies accidentally at the end of the mission too it's kind of like the last last straw for so he needs some time off and in, in one of those raids uh, led by Major March Phillips himself the the like first commanding officer of 6-2 Commando. That group goes over again for another raid in France and they're compromised. They're shot. They're detected early on as they are securing the beachhead. The Germans basically wipe them out to a man. One of the guys is actually captured and uh, he spent six months in solitary conform confinement before the commando order is issued in 1942 and, and the guy is executed. One of the One of the other officers that was involved in the raid and Kemp just gets a telegram, basically, you know, you're, you know, the SSRF team that went over is eliminated. Stop, and that's it. That's that's the message. Like they don't exist anymore. And so he he kind of feels sorry for himself. He's he's kind of glad he wasn't on a mission, but in, in some like it just just like just Kemp things, right? Extraordinary things happen. He just he just so happens at the end of the mission to hurt himself in a way that he couldn't go on this mission, but. The team gets wiped out. There's still, like, a lot, you know, the, I guess the the organization kind of slogs along for the next few months, but there's no more raids. They actually, after that, they kind of cancel raids on the Normandy coast and the, the Channel Islands because they're, I think that the, the raid where he, he describes the killing of the German, that's, that's pretty traumatic for him, happens on the Isle of Sark. 
Or no, that wasn't that, that might have been the Normandy Coast, that one. But anyways, like they're they're raiding kind of all across the Channel Islands and the Normandy Coast, but realizing that they're like potentially throwing away their best assets that they have the, the best trained men at suicide missions after um, Mark Phillips' team is compromised and they're they're wiped out almost to a man. I think one guy does get away. The raids on the these Channel Islands and the Normandy coast are completely suspended. So as a result, number 62 Commando just kind of slogs around, doesn't really do anything until it's ultimately disbanded and the guys either go to David Sterling's Special Air Service or the also newly formed Special Boat Service. And yeah, Kemp kind of sits in England feeling sorry for himself and really, really wants to get back into it. He knows 6-2 is not going to be doing a whole lot. So, uh, he, And also, like, a lot of the guys... I, sh I should mention this as well before I move on. A lot of the guys that go on to the SAS, like Major Major uh, Lassen VC, are killed because just the nature of the work. And the SBS, they're still doing dangerous stuff, but the, the Channel Coast raids are done. They're not happening again um, until Dieppe, basically, and that's that's the last one for a while. So these these guys are kind of dispersed all around. Some of the guys do end up going to Dieppe and stuff. And Peter Kemp gets a kind of a weird opportunity, but in in a way, it's just what's he's like the protagonist of like World War II because it's just one of those things that. It could have happened to anybody, but it just ha just so happened to happen to him. But an opportunity comes up for him to go to Albania. This really weird, mysterious country that at this point, the British actually don't know a heck of a lot about. So you know all that history that I just elaborated on? The British don't really have this background. All they understand is that the Italians have invaded this country. And there's a guy by the name of Abbas Kupi, who has something of a resistance group. And another guy by the name of Joseph Bros Tito, who later becomes the like the dictator of Yugoslavia, as we as we know, also operating a shadowy group of maybe communist renegades resisting the Italians and the Germans. So because they're fighting the Axis powers, we have to support them. And basically it was like we're gonna drop you in to this weird country that is possibly friendly to us and you're going to do everything in your power to give the money, arms, and expertise to fight back against the Axis and help us win this war. He sees a very like Lawrence of Arabia, Indiana Jones tier adventure and is like, okay, this is better than sitting here in England feeling sad about the deaths of all of our friends. Uh, I'll do it. And uh, he jumps into Albania in 1942 with, um, with the with the I think 1942, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he jumps into Albania. Uh, no, I think it's actually 43. Because when he jumps in, the Italians are pulling out. 43. Oh, right. So he's in Cairo in 42. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of workup training. He's told in 42 he's going. He goes to Cairo, Egypt first, and there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of workup, so it's like 43 jumps in. Now, timeline is probably getting it wrong, but he does he does jump in in Albania at the at the conclusion of the Italian occupation, 
as the Germans start. Uh, well, the Germ there is a German presence there because you know the Germans and the Italians are allied. Mm-hmm. There is a German, like a Nazi presence there. It's, it becomes very prominent after the Italians leave. And basically, he drops in at the tail end of the Italian occupation. The Italian occupation, obviously, having been there since 1939, as mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. So they've been there for a few years. There's all these like little weird groups. And basically, he like has to drop into Albania, discover them, find out what he, they need, and give them gold. And he's, he's actually, when he parachutes into Albania after a bunch of training with a wireless operator, a second-in-command, and a few other, like, specialized teams that are the same uh, size and makeup led by generally like three officers and one NCO who's a wireless operator all these teams have uh, waistbands that are just the gold gold pieces sewn into them right and that's how they're like distributing money and stuff so they're literally dropping in with gold guns what's you know the Warrens of on some war- lawyers, lawyers guns and money yeah Minus the lawyers. Yeah, gold guns. <laughs> gold guns and money. Yeah. And they are. They're literally, like, dropping in with, like, cash and, and guns. And, and they're like, okay, let's let's do this. Because SOE is still a very new... Like, this is a very new concept. Uh, today, we, we, we recognize what they were doing now as something pretty common. Because it was, it was done... It's done all the time, all over the world. Where you have what's called un- you, you you partake in what's called unconventional warfare you show up as a big conventional power rather than having the hammer right right you or or like you know a claymore or a battle axe you show in with this you show up with a stiletto and you allow your allies to get the battle axe it's so or to use like weapons analogies or whatever. You show up in support of a foreign insurgency or resistance movement with all of the big country assets that you have and you don't and as a result there's there's kind of multiple benefits to this. Number 1, you're not committing a massive amount of troops into these operations. At this time, the the Brit like the bulk of the British army was engaged in fighting in the western desert in North Africa. Right, where they're having a pretty hard time, so to speak. There was fighting in Sicily. There was fighting kind of all over the Mediterranean at this point. And uh, opening up another front in Albania would have been a logistical nightmare, very expensive. Hey, there's Albanians here that want to fight Germans too and want to fight Italians too. Let's let them fight. But if they fight on their own, they will probably lose because... As we will soon learn, the Albanians are not very good at <laughs> at, uh, at guerrilla warfare. No offense to Albanians, but they, they aren't very good at, at guerrilla warfare. So, as a result, the, the British are greatly needed uh, to carry on this this insurgency. So you have that you don't have to commit all your forces. And the the second thing. On, on top of just like saving resources for bigger set piece operations like Operation Husky and the Battle of Tobruk and El Alamein and all that that was happening concurrently, you also have ki- kind of like the perspective of a soldier, s- soldier politician, right? 
maybe they are almost the lawyers and the lawyers against money because yeah. like, they 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 have to be basically the the diplomats and representatives and emissaries of the British authorities, government. the British government, right? You don't have Montgomerys going in and debating tactics with these Albanians. It's a guy who's te- who knows when to listen and when to speak and when to act. So for for that reason, like there's a much greater chance of success uh, through using someone who's a little more, I guess, tactful as far as diplomacy goes, as well as very tactically sound so that you can achieve your aims without needing a huge conventional force. That being said, it's still very ad hoc because there's things they don't understand about the country and that's 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 the main fault. They don't have the intelligence that uh, today's unconventional warfare operators would have like to you know modern day green berets and stuff are going in with a lot more information about a place before they ever drop you know one of the things that happens when he drops in albania right away well first off he has like kind of a rough landing right which is expected because he lands like on a on an inclined hill so his yeah his knee gets all busted up and he's a little messed up concurrently as they're as they're jumping out of the aircraft they're dropping supplies and uh, it's like clothes and weapons and ammunition and more gold and food and it's you know and parachuted down in boxes and all of it <laughs> immediately upon landing is like looted by random Albanians not not partisans not not collaborators not the enemy just random like farmers immediately steal <laughs> everything and I'm not joking like all of their supplies are like lost it, it's a, it's a complete mess, and they, they you know they have like some Albanian contacts in country because they do, they do have like fires lit for them, so they know where to drop. But like, yeah, the, the technology is very rudimentary. The the landing zones are marked by fire, like literally like bonfires that the Italians can see, and and uh, yeah, all of the supplies that they drop with are like lost, and it's 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 really confusing because he's met sometimes people like would meet um, Kemp and his team and they'd be like you guys are like our heroes and fellow liberators and others would be like you're fascist dogs because you're British and you have a king and stuff and he's just like what? Like I'm just just trying to figure out what the hell's going on here so very quickly this guy who actually doesn't speak Albanian has to learn everything there is to know about Albanian history and culture He, he, he tries to learn what he can about the country but there's just there's so much he has to learn on the ground, right? And that really that really handicaps the British because um, they're just giving gold to random groups that that would much rather shoot at each other than shoot at the Germans. Again, we talked about the LNC and the the ballast. Like they they'd much rather be fighting among each other, or even at, at a more like micro level, because that's that's at the macro group level. But there's like. There's also a huge history because again, Albania is a very ancient land. There's a huge history of blood feuds, and and there, one of the lines that comes out of Camp's book is that the, the average like family in certain parts of Albania that have had where there's like an ongoing blood feud, the average person, the average guy or girl, has lost twenty, at least twenty members of their family to the blood feud in their lifetime, and that's just like. A very medieval. Yeah, as in, I in said, many, many you know, that northern part is like the Highland clans. Yeah. Exactly like that. There are the 
these little clans will, ideology and politics aside, will fight to the death over, you know, like, you know, a slighted marriage or, like, someone stole someone's herd of sheep. Like, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, there was one where somebody... Same with, like, the rich bays in the south. They'll fight each other over the... Yeah. So everybody's fighting at a micro and a macro level. And it gets, like, more and more macro as as you go up. Like, they're technically all supposed to be fighting the Germans and the Italian occupiers, but they're also fighting, like, the Ballast or the LNC, depending, or the Zogists. Yeah. And then they're also fighting, like, between... <laughs> between families and clans and individuals, right, and friend groups and stuff like that. So there, there's a lot of conflict in this place. It's not, it's not just one singular war. And it just it just shows like like, especially in a place like Albania, the Second World War was not one big unified push by any search of the imagination against the Axis, Allies versus Axis. Like the Allies were all, well, they weren't really Allies. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Right away, one of the one of the first operations he encounters with the Albanians, they have, uh, and he's again because of that unconventional warfare capacity, he's not really supposed to be doing a lot of shooting. He's not going out doing these direct action raids as he had uh, as a member of Six Two Commando. He has to go out and kind of guide these guys and teach them like how you conduct set-piece battles against an industrialized army with not a not a heck of a lot. They're using a mixture of old Turkish rifles from, like, the First World War. They're wearing a mixture of Italian, British, German, and uh, Albanian <laughs> monarchist uniforms. They're, if they're wearing uniforms at all. If they're wearing a uniform at all. There's, like, anywhere from year old boys to 60 year old men in these partisan quote unquote partisan units and sometimes they're fighting among themselves it's it's a it's a bit of a disaster and they they and a lot of these groups recognize that after the axis leaves their country which inevitably they they will right at least they saw that you know 1943 who knows which way the war was going to go but they're, they were thinking at the end of this war, we're going to fight amongst ourselves, so there's no point wasting our manpower and our resources fighting the Germans. We're going to keep milking the, at least from Kemp's perspective, and in many ways it's very true, like we're going to just keep milking the British out of their gold, expertise, weapons, clothing, food, uh, and use it to fight our LNC or ballast enemies, respectively. So, one of the first, that, like, Operations that Kemp guides, uh, there are, what is it, like 200, at least, no, no, it's a, it's a battalion, so that's like 600, some 600 men against a group of approximately 20 Germans, if we're going to use a high estimate, a platoon of Germans. The, the, Maybe thirty or forty if we're if being we're really like generous. <laughs> generous yeah. And the platoon of Germans with a single MG thirty four light machine gun and a bunch of riflemen fire like a single burst at this battalion as the battalion of, of Albanian fighters with with British with Kemp like trying to like guide them along um, are advancing like the single burst of the machine gun forces the entire battalion back and he asked the commander of this like battalion what the what the heck like you, you, 
you have like way more. You had number them like you had, ten you times had, over. I think they had two pieces of artillery with them. They had like they had like. They're also on high ground. They're also so high like ground. They have mules. They have like lots of supplies, lots of food. Yeah. They could just like literally pick off these Germans one by one from the hills. Exactly. And uh, the guy's like, no, I'm going to suffer casualties because they have one machine gun. And to despite Kemp's protests, like you have to keep, like you have to destroy this German garrison or whatever, uh, the Albanians retreat. So there, there's another moment where uh, the Albanians claim a great victory. And actually, are you gonna are you gonna quote that? I will. Yeah, read this you're whole gonna, you're gonna section because it's quote pretty that. good. Okay, we had. Just settled ourselves to get what rest we could before dawn when we were disagreeably startled by the sound of machine gun fire from across the valley. Oh my god, sighed Smiley, Tahir's run into trouble, unless of course they're shooting at each other. Half an hour later, Mehmet Chu and his staff approached over the hill, shining torches with a lavish disregard for concealment which infuriated Smiley. Our plan has failed, began Mehmet angrily. Tahir's battalion has been surprised by a German post on that hill. We must withdraw. There is nothing we can do here. Oh yes, there is, said Smiley and McLean together. You can start by wiping out that German post. There can't be many of them. Mehmet Chou shook his head. No, it is impossible. My first operation must be 100% successful. Just what we mean, said Smiley. Look how easy it's going to be to kill those few Germans with all the men you've got, especially in the dark. Then we can have a crack at the convoy tomorrow. Mehmet looked at the ground between his feet. I've already given the order to withdraw, he muttered. So that's the that's when they're attacking this like really poorly manned German post. Mm-hmm. Um, they do claim a victory, though, right? Yes, uh, I'm, so I'm, get, I'm getting okay. that. Yeah. So despite this huge setback where an entire battalion of Albanians is... Is forced to retreat by like a single burst of a MG thirty four. Yeah. They they claim a great victory, yes. the greatest El- uh, victory in okay. Albanian military history. Let's yeah. let's read it. At the end of the morning's argument, McLean gave up. So eight hundred of your patriotic Albanians, with all of the <laughs> armament and all the training we have given them, are to be frightened away by twenty Germans. He explained. <laughs> Without a word, Mehmet turned and walked away, followed by his staff and some plainly audible comments from Smiley. In the early afternoon, I spent two hours watching the road through my binoculars. No convoy passed. A few solitary staff cars and one or two army lorries were the only traffic during my vigil. When I rejoined McLean, the brigade had moved off, leaving us alone with Stiljan, Stefan, our mules, and their drivers. You'd be pleased to hear that the brigade has been in action, was Smiley's greeting to me. I looked at him in astonishment, for I had heard no shooting. Yes, they killed a solitary German who had wandered into a village near here in search of food. He was unarmed, of course. So their great victory, after being repulsed, so the brigade was, I think, so the, it was a, it was a whole brigade. So the, yeah, it was like four battalions worth of them. Yeah, eight hundred versus twenty. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the battalion's like two hundred men or whatever. So not a not a. These weren't full size brigades or battalions. Don't. Don't think Western Front here or Eastern Front. This is this is the Albanian meme war. The 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 one victory they achieved that day was a lone unarmed hungry German that they like stabbed because they tend to just slit throats, right? <laughs> so so that was it. Most of the time, the shooting that Kemp heard that he, you know because he was a he's a combat veteran, 
you hear shooting nearby, you immediately wake up and you stand to. Most of the time, I, and I lost, I was trying to count through the book how many times he like recounts waking up and there's like machine gun fire, submachine gun fire in Albania. And it's just a blood feud. Like someone just killed somebody over a goat or somebody killed somebody over hitting on someone's daughter or something. That Like that's, that's most of the, the gunshots that he wakes up to instinctively are these stupid blood feuds so or like a single solitary german machine gunner holding back a battalion i mean that guy probably had a fun story to tell if he survived the war like oh yeah we held back an entire albanian battalion albanian army yeah basically. actually the albanian army at this point with the, with one machine gun with a single burst right mm-hmm. it sounds it sounds almost like homeric you know it is the illyrian um Illyrian coast, so yeah. it's a very ancient land of heroes and the 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 lone German. That should be a poem. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that being said, like this this is this was this was Albania, and there's a lot of this. We're not gonna read all of the excerpts. There's just there's just so so damn much. Uh, one of the ones that really stuck out to you, especially because you kept telling me about this, like for to get me into this book, anyways. And I was really looking forward to this. Was when uh, when they when the uh, Albanians, being you know relatively ruthless fellows, um, decide that they're going to execute some some Germans. They're because they you know they don't have POW camps. These are partisans, so they're like, oh, we're, we captured some Wehrmacht guys. We're going to execute them, and it somehow messes up spectacularly. Do the partisans always shoot their prisoners? I asked him. Either that, or cut their throats which is probably kinder to them as these people are such bad shots. They ambushed a cartload of Huns the other day and took four of them prisoner. One of the partisans who was there told me they led the Germans into a wood and made them take off their boots, and then lined them up and shot at them with Sten guns. The shooting was so bad that the Germans were able to pick up stones and throw them at the partisans before being killed. One German ran away but was caught again. I suppose, said McLean maliciously, the partisan told you that to show you how brave he was to go on shooting at the Germans while they were throwing stones. So yeah, it's it's almost comical some of these uh Yeah, they so they accounts they, just to play by play here, man. They line up a bunch of German prisoners. Didn't they they didn't have to take him they made him take off their boots so they couldn't run away. And they line him up. They have Submachine guns at their back. <laughs> they fire entire like twenty or thirty round mags into the Germans, and somehow miss them all. Every the entire yeah. burst of machine gun fire misses at like point blank range. The Germans turn around and start throwing rocks at them, <laughs> and one of the Germans actually is able to escape. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that man survived the war. It would have been such a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. No one would have believed him. <laughs> yeah, no, no one. <laughs> like, well, we threw rocks at them and I got away. So, yeah, there is a bit of an almost... And Kemp, honestly, it sounds like... This theme keeps coming up and up. And, I mean, I don't think it's necessary that the Albanian soldiers are... Incompetent. Incompetent or cowardly, but they're, they seem to be not very well organized, trained, or led. And Kemp always sounds like he's trying to herd cats. Yep. That's that's Albania until um. I don't I don't want to spoil too. You guys have to read this book if you want to get the, the exact details. But basically, um, Kemp Kemp is a mover, and these guys 
are moving in different directions. Let's put it that way. And he he wants to move these like we have a you guys have a common enemy. And you know what? He, to, to Kemp's credit, like he's willing to work with LNC guys. He really doesn't like them. He meets Enver uh, Hawksa many times, who's the LNC leader. Devout Stalinist, like devoted yes. Stalinist. And Kemp obviously doesn't like communists, but at the same time, he is not... He really doesn't like Hawks personally. Yeah, he really doesn't like Hawks personally, but he's willing to work with them because he's like, listen, like, guys, you were literally being occupied by mm-hmm. Germans. It, you got, like, you got to do something about it. Like, you, you have to unify and fight, right? And then you can have your political squabble afterwards, and it doesn't need to be violent just not the albanian mindset at this point so it doesn't it doesn't work and he pisses off a few too many partisan groups trying to play diplomat he does a pretty good job to his credit he works for a long time he he almost makes some progress and almost to the last possible minute the special operations executive is just like hey like we're getting reports about you that you're alienating the communists by working with certain groups that the communists don't like so We'd just like you to come back and give us a report in Cairo, which means he's he's done, right? So he he ends up having to go back uh, to, well, to Cairo via via Italy, which is a whole other disaster of <laughs> of a trip where like they they almost die several times and it's it's absolutely miserable and boring. People lose their minds. They're they're actually under communist guard, like they're kind of detained under house arrest by the communists who escort them under armed guard out of the country, right? Uh, and P- Peter kind of wants to go back, but as he's in Cairo, a, a more interesting opportunity comes up because he's kind of, despite the fact that he does want to go back and continue to operate in Albania and continue to make a difference in the way he was, um, you know, he's another opportunity comes up, and that's Poland, right after the Warsaw Uprising. And by, by the way, towards the end of that uh, Albanian operation is when he that that epitaph that you read at the beginning to the end of a free Albania is in direct reference to the British, basically just going like, you know what, screw Albania, and letting them fall under the Iron Curtain. Yeah, he's very critical of the way that the British handled. I guess, sort of say, foreign policy in the Balkans and Albania especially. And not the operators on the ground. It's not necessarily their fault. Because he said, like, half of them are real idealists that really believe that these people can, that we can diplomacy our way out of this. And the other half are, what's the word, almost like naive soldiers who are just like, we can fight our way out of this. But none of them are Albanian, unfortunately, and it just it just doesn't work, right? There's just not enough trust in the British, and the the LNC especially are very hostile to the British the entire time. They're more than willing to accept their money, but they they literally like have openly openly anti-British rants and speeches and tirades in front of their British advisors about how bad monarchies, how bad empires are, and death to imperialists death to fascists, death to the British as they're accepting British gold and stuff. So it's just like it's kind of a soup sandwich. It's a, it's a bit of a disaster. So the better opportunity for Kemp to kind of make a difference comes up and that's Poland. Right after the Warsaw Uprising in War, well, Warsaw, 
the, the ruins of what was once yeah, Warsaw at this point. Warsaw, and, you know, we won't get too deep into the Warsaw. We maybe do a podcast on it one day. That's a crazy that story was in quite itself. A fight. Yeah, but the remnants of the Polish Home Army, um, well, basically they 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 were remnants, and and the British wanted basically to get boots on the ground to figure out what we have left to work with and where we go from here. We know what the ultimate decision was. It was just... we're we Same as Albania. Same as Albania. We won't recognize the anti-communist forces anymore. We recognize just like whatever Soviet-appointed or Soviet-aligned government there is. That's what happened in Poland as well. But in Poland, the, the home army survived in a small form shortly after the... Uh, shortly after the Warsaw Uprising and Kemp with a new team parachutes in to his knowledge and maybe you know like I haven't read anything contrarian to this or you're gonna cut that part up it's the wrong word I haven't read anything contrary to this but Kemp and his team are the only British officers during the entire war who actually land in Poland as parachutists as far as the SOE goes. Now, maybe that's wrong, but in the book, he does claim that. I have heard that the SOE did drop a lot of guys into Poland, but whether they were officers or not, I'd have to... Yeah, he says specifically we're the, we're the first British officers. Okay, because the there war. definitely were SOE guys dropped in Poland before. Well, there were, there were, there were PWs fighting there, like prisoners of wars that had, that had escaped... That joined the home army and stuff like there's there's yeah but that. there was SOE guys dropped to right. join the AK but probably like, I can I can say that for a fact okay but probably he says specifically we're the first officers mm-hmm. British officers that had uh, landed and I mean it's kind of depressing from this point because basically long story short the the AK is not yes really a thing anymore the yeah. AK being the home army yeah which the is AK the, the anti communists yeah. Uh, anti-German, yeah. anti-Russian resistance fighters. Yes, in the AK stands for Armia Krajowa, which translates roughly to Home Army. They are loyal to the Polish government in exile that's in London. Uh, they're very anti-communist. Um, they're very anti-German. They yeah. sort of basically want to return to the pre-war status quo. Most of them, and they are the sort of main Polish resistance. They are the. Um, what's it called the the vanguard of the warsaw uprising and most of the sort of polish they're the people who have been a very large thorn in the side of the german uh occupiers and, for and, and the lublin committee which were the communist the um the the leaders of the communist uh people's army yes because there is the other competing faction yeah there is technically three factions of resistance the ak is the first and most important second there is the al or, or armia ludowa which is the, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation of that, that is the People's Army, which is basically a pro-Soviet communist um, army that's not nearly as powerful or influential as the AK, but they do have their um, part. And finally, there's the NSZ, uh, National Armed Forces, which are um, run by a certain colonel. They are very right wing and much like the sort of uh, much like the Balists are kind of sort of sometimes collaborate with the Germans to 
kill the communists, but they also in the Warsaw Uprising um, uh, do fight against the Germans. I think some of their members include members of the pre-war ONR, which was the Polish Fascist Party. Uh, strangely, the uh, leader of that actually died in a German concentration camp in occupied Poland. Um, the Germans just didn't like the Poles. No, and they, 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 I fascist. think... Polish fascists, Polish Poles, yeah. Polish communists. Well, and that's what... I mean, people always talk no about World War II as a war of ideology, but it was more than that. Right. It's a war of nation-states. The Germans yeah. did not like the Poles, the ideology aside. And there was yeah. a long they sort of... They didn't care if they were fascists. They're just like... No, yeah, they are like, you're Polish? Bad news. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, those are the three groups that are in... Um, there's going to be sound in this recording, by the way. You can leave this in. We we play with knives and bayonets and stuff throughout the podcast. So we're hearing the clicking and clanking and, and like the cock of firearms or whatever. Yeah, I'll leave that in. Um, <laughs> Makes us feel better yes. about reading these heavy topics. Yes, and interestingly, they're fighting yeah. sort of three different groups on the other side. You've got the regular That's German weird. army, the Wehrmacht. You've got the uh, Waffen-SS, which are, of course... Not really German elite troops. Vaslov's uh, Cossacks. And thirdly, Vlasov's Cossacks, who are these sort of... So they're all POWs from the Eastern Front that the Germans had captured, yeah. primarily from Cossack mm -hmm. or predominantly Cossack Soviet units. All these guys were... At least their families and stuff were descended from like white Russians. Some of them might have been white Russians themselves, and they weren't particular fans of Stalin. So when the opportunity came out, came came up to, I guess, kind of rape and destroy their way through Poland, under in German uniforms with no consequence, and act as anti-partisan fighters with a lot of German support, and maybe just maybe, free Russia. After all, they like a lot of them were part of. They're they're called the free free Russian army. Right? Free Russian Army? Free yeah, the Army. ROA. ROA, right? Yeah. So because of that opportunity, they're like, screw it, we'll do it. And uh, yeah, they, they did a little bit of war crime in through there, as as, yes. as Kemp describes. Yeah, um, The uh, also, were there any Ukrainians in that? Yes. Yes, so the most western corner of Ukraine, I actually learned this the other day, uh, was under Polish the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for years. And the Poles actually were, didn't treat the Western Ukrainians very nice. There's a long yeah, history of yeah. punitive raids and stuff. So Western Ukrainians were more than willing to join the Germans in doing war crimes in occupied Poland. So that's also yep. part of the... Lots of war crimes. Yes, this is not Lots a nice nastiness. part of the war. So the Poles were fierce fighters as a result of just how often they got screwed over and uh, Kemp witnesses this firsthand because obviously like this this mission just like the Albania mission ends up not going very well because they're kind of on the receiving end of two different invasions and the Soviets aren't exact well they're not really sure what's going to happen with them when the Soviets do eventually cross um, what was the name of the line it started with this letter C whatever the battle the main battle line was the main forward edge of the battle space, or whatever, the FIBA. Um, in, in, I know what you're talking or, yeah, about. Yeah, the, just on the can't eastern front. The name. Something, something Slavic, sounding. Uh, that when they when the Soviets crossed that line over into where like Kemp was operating, he wasn't really sure what was going to happen. But he, 
at one point he's like escaping these Germans a little little bit before this, and um, he's basically because again he's in this unconventional warfare role. He's not really expected to kind of fight back. To be fair, he only has like a 1911. Yeah. Most of this, right? We we should by the way when we right after this we will talk about the well again. We just got to give it a little honorable mention here. Mm-hmm. So you haven't talked about it. Speaking of guns and gadgets, we got to talk about the well gun. But he, I don't think he even has a well gun in Poland. He hasn't dropped one. He only drops with a 1911 because he's not really there to fight. But uh, regardless, <laughs> the Germans don't know that. And one day while he kind of is like hungover, recovering from drinking with these random poles, <laughs> there's four Panzer IVs outside the door of the house that they're staying at. I'm not going to read the full excerpt, but basically he's in an engagement where some, and I'm quoting here, some 25 poles with rifles and one light machine gun were taking on four tanks, at least 100 well-armed Germans. And basically, Kemp and the other SOE guys make a break for it, where a single Bren gunner basically holds off a good chunk of the Germans pursuing them. Yep. And it's this kind of is the sort of suicidal bravery of the Polish resistance, which is shown time and time again throughout the war, most notably in the uh, 1944 uprising, but certainly towards the end of the war. Okay, speaking of guns and brand guns, let's we got it. We got to mention the well gun because I should have maybe mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I just thought this was a very cool bit of history in in the book. Now this this is definitely one of those books. As as we conclude here, I, I need to emphasize, you're probably gonna want your phone in your other hand or laptop or computer or something just to like kind of research some of the things he mentions. First off, Kemp is very talented and he speaks like four languages. So he speaks some. There's like phrases in French that he keeps saying that need translation. If you're not a French speaker, there's phrases in like Polish. He says that he doesn't translate. There's phrases in uh, Albanian. There's phrases in Italian. There's songs in Albanian. Um, so you know, having a translator is nice for this book. Having Wikipedia just to understand some of the characters mm-hmm. that he encounters. There's a lot of characters. Is nice. But, but one of the things that stuck out to me as a big guns and ammo guy is he talks about something called the well gun, which is one of the many cool gadgets that the SOE has. In addition to like the Fairbairn Sykes knife and the really cool modified uh, motor torpedo boats that they had, the MTBs, that, that were literally modified for these like nighttime raids with number 62 commando, he talks about something called the well gun, which he actually uses in Albania. He might have used it in uh, the number 6-2 commando during one of the, the Channel Island raids. It's not explicitly clear because he kind of interchangeably says well gun and Tommy gun. After all, any, any semi-automatic machine gun was considered a Tommy gun. At some points, he even says like the Germans fired at us with their Tommy guns. Obviously, I highly doubt there were Thompson M1A1s <laughs> or M1As or, or M1s or whatever, but Probably, Probably there were Schmeisers or your MP40s or yeah. STG44. You know, everything that s- shoots full auto kind of pistol caliber rounds at you or smaller rounds is a quote-unquote Tommy gun. So it's not explicitly clear what he means by the Tommy guns on the uh, Channel Island raids, but definitely he does say the well gun is what was used in Albania. It was his go-to SMG. 
that the armorer had specifically modified for him. Unfortunately, it actually encounters some stoppage issues in in uh, in Albania at one point. He kind of bitches about it, and then <laughs> it gets like stolen on a mule towards the end of his mission because just 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 Peter Kemp things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's still out there somewhere in some Albanian farm. Anyways, this probably was a, using like the Yugoslav Wars. Yeah, in the 90s. yeah, yeah, yeah probably some dude used an ancient wall gun. So, it picture if you will, like a Thompson M1A1 cut down with the stamp metal of a is it stamp I think it's stamp metal of a Sten right and the and the pistol grip of a Thompson and kind of like the look of a Thompson with a folding stock I know I know it sounds like an MP, MP uh, MP5 or something or like some other modern submachine gun it looked it looked actually remarkably modern yes it's like it all black it's got this interesting, like coiled barrel shroud. It's got um, the the original. Uh, I think it was called the Norm Gun, which is the, what the Welcome des- uh, developed off of. Had a folding foregrip, which is a very modern. That's a very modern concept. The folding foregrip. Um, it had this, um, like a like the you see like the gripper. We're looking at a picture of it here. Maybe we'll post a picture of it underneath this podcast if you are listening on the website of the pistol grip itself or or what the well gun looked like but it was very futuristic it had yeah this you see that gripper gripper yeah. grip i don't know how to describe it it's like it has contours for your fingers yeah, it, it's a very modern looking gun yeah. compared to most guns you see in the second world war exactly and the action is like a big hand it's like a big 1911 slide there's no like external bolt, so it's there's nothing to catch on. It's very like for command, like it's like it's purpose built for like a commando raid, or like a you know lone operator. It's so compact. It was like, it almost looks like it was like, maybe a three three quarters of the length of a Thompson, which in itself the Thompson M1A, the American one M1A one, was pretty compact overall. This is almost like three quarters of size. Which you, we're looking, we're like to incite, we're like we're like measuring dicks earlier with it. What did you What did you think? Half. Yeah, around half the you size. You say half? It's pretty small. Half the size of a Thompson. Definitely when the when the stock is up, it's like half. It's yeah. it's tiny. With the stock out, it's maybe like maybe two quarter. thirds of the size. Two thirds. Okay. Yeah. Tiny though. Tiny little thing. There's only like one decent video on YouTube where the guy there's a guy at uh, TFP TV. It's operating it. It's like playing with it that I've mm-hmm. seen. A lot of the other videos are because apparently it was in a video game, so the so YouTube's just like dominated by it in the video game. But I don't want to see it in the like I want to see one in real life because there's uncommon. Anyways, they were initially going to be issued like the Sten, like a, just as a SMG because they were pretty well built. They're fairly robust and reliable. The SOE guys really liked them in testing. Um, they're a very effective SMG, very compact. In a lot of ways, better than the Stens. The Stens had a lot of, lot of issues in the in the war. They were very poorly built, uh, and it was a lot lighter than the than the Lan- Lanchester, which was the other uh, contemporary submachine gun. Now that wasn't used by the army. That was like a Navy Air Force SMG. That one was also pretty well built, but it was just it was fucking heavy. So the Well Gun was like the perfect in between, where it's like not not super heavy, but st- far more reliable so it had like the best of these contemporary submachine guns 
the big thing, as with all nice things, is that it costs too much money. It costs way too much money to build. So they never even serialized them. They were all um, sterilized. They didn't have serial numbers. They never made the large hundreds of thousands that they had planned. Uh, the few hundred, maybe thousand or whatever, all issued to Special Operations Executive and Commando units. That was it. And Peter Kemp was a guy who got one. Uh, and it's just, it's a really cool gun. So and then just, some guy in Albania got one. <laughs> some guy got it because he put it on a mule and then like the mule, someone brought the mule somewhere where it wasn't supposed to be and he just like, oh cool, I, I only have my handgun now. And he had to like escape Albania with, <laughs> with, with just the 1911. And, and he said one magazine of ammo. So he had, he had his, he had his 1911 and one magazine. So seven rounds. And had to escape and evade out of Algeria, uh, Algeria, Albania. So, anyways, well done. I thought that was pretty cool. Just a little honorable mention. Um, I think we should give also one other honorable mention, not to a gun, but um, as many of you know, we talk a lot about Rhodesia on this podcast, and Albania has a Rhodesian connection that I think we should mention, because I don't think... Oh, we'll... yeah, so, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Zog... King Zog's son, Lekka, mm-hmm. was a, uh, <laughs> he was an interesting fellow. He lived under the shadow of his dad. His dad uh, went to exile eventually in London. And Peter Kemp actually meets him. And he's actually like, you know, pretty, you know, Kemp kind of likes him. He's, he's a very respectable man. And um, anyways, his, his son, uh, grows up in South Africa eventually because he, he's from, he, like, he hangs out in London and he goes to South Africa and he never forgets, like, I am the king, I am the king and um, he eventually moves to Thailand at one point. He has a, he has a, he has this, like, bodyguard of Thai men, I guess. <laughs> and he kind of lives a bit of a playboy life until the early 90s when communism collapses in Albania. Actually, because en- Enver Hossa, who's like the Stalinist leader of Albania, dies in 1985. A really, really crappy leader takes over. I don't even know his name. No, most people don't know him. He's yeah, just, I, I can't. He was just like a, he's just like a really weak-willed guy that typically takes over after the really strong, strong man, just like Tito. Yeah. No, who the hell knows Tito, Tito's successor, right? Off the mm-hmm. top of their head. Nobody. Yeah. So just some like weak guy takes over after the strong man and the and the and communism collapses. So, as a result, uh, Lekka hears of this and because he'd spent some time in South Africa and Rhodesia, he spent a lot of time in Rhodesia and actually not like like a, like a few years. Not a yeah, lot. Most well, of the time was in Thailand. Okay, true. Most but the there are the reason I'm bringing this up is there is a photo that you will see yeah, around you'll see, yep. um, internet of. Basically, patriotic Albanians who traveled with Lekka in yeah. uh, Rhodesian camouflage with and, their kind and, of Albanian and, patches. And Lekka, yeah, okay, no, here's it. That's not you don't know the context. I got, I'll explain it. You don't even know it. So, in when communism collapsed, like the day it collapsed, he showed up in Albania and he flew into Tirana, in a which is the capital, in a private jet. <laughs> With his like Thai lady boy army or whatever, they weren't Albanians, buddy. Like there were some Albanians with him, but like 
most of them where there's like Thai bodyguard. By the way, he got kicked out of Thailand for some crazy reason. He's like weird guy. He got kicked out of Thailand. He shows up and he is wearing the Rhodesian brushstroke and he's like waving to the crowd. That's the story behind the picture. And he basically just said like, I am king again. And then uh, they had a plebiscite, I think. Or no, it was like a referendum. And he like, by a slim margin, Albanians were like, we don't want a monarchy by like 1%. And uh, Lekka went on, went into self-imposed exile after that. And he did eventually like return and at multiple times, people are like, do you want another referendum? And he's always he always said something along the lines of, like, uh, I am above politics. I don't need a vote. I know I'm king kind of deal. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, no, weird story. The, yeah, the photo I'm talking about is one of, like, there's sort of four guys in his a His bodyguard, yeah. Yeah, these guys, though, are not Thai. Like, they're Caucasian. So I Yeah, that's his, dude, that picture was taken in his Thai compound. Okay. Not in Rhodesia. All right. Well, they're wearing the Rhodesian yeah. brushstroke, yeah. and yeah. they have yeah. Because what yeah. happened was he went to like South Africa, and then he went to Thailand. It's really okay. Weird. All right, dude. The story is like so. So those weird are Albanians wearing Rhodesian in camo Thailand. in Thailand. Yeah, it's so. It's okay. I might even be getting it wrong. There's so many different like, um, I guess, controversies with those photos. The only one we know definitively what the heck's going on. Is the uh, when he's in Tehran and he's like waving to the crowd in Rhodesian Russia. Like we know that's okay. like the end of communism, but that that other picture could have been taken anywhere in the world, and we have no idea what the heck he's going on, where he got Rhodesian army uniforms from. Maybe he just bought. Who who the heck knows? It was a complete <laughs> weird gong show. But anyways, yeah, Zog's um, Zog's son was interesting. We'll leave it at that. Uh, there, basically, like there's. There's not more, not a whole lot more to Poland, um, other than the Soviet army does encroach and they kind of unlawfully detain Kemp, and that's a that's an experience and a half. I don't really want to get into that here. I don't know about you, but like you, you guys got to read the book. But as fair warning, have your Wikipedia handy because there's going to be a lot of things like the well gun because I didn't even know what the well gun was until I read this, and I was just like, that's that's a very cool firearm. Have your little Wikipedia handy. Even though Wikipedia is not always the best, but it just there's a lot of stuff to look up. Have maybe book. your reference books. Yeah, handy. have your little reference books ready for sure. Um, we had, we we had two take big. Uh, so yeah, definitely read this book. It's it's very cool, uh, but be prepared for it. It's not like um, it's not like his first book, his Spanish Civil War book, where yeah. you just get into it. This this you need a little bit of. A little bit of, yeah. I well, think this podcast is probably good enough reference yeah, point for, mo yes. for most people. Yes. You can probably jump Yeah, so if that. you've listened to this podcast all the way to this point, you can probably jump into this book right away. Yes. But uh, if you have not, like, <laughs> or if you know anybody who hasn't or whatever, um, get some World War II background knowledge and maybe a little bit of Albanian knowledge, a little bit of Polish history. Yeah, you need a lot to get into this. Yeah, it's not a little British special forces. This is not popular history by any stretch of no. the imagination. We had two big takeaways. Two big takeaways. So I'll I'll uh, I, I wrote them out here, and you can agree or disagree with me. Okay. So the the Balkans are a absolute mess of history, and uh, don't 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 expect to make any sense of it because ethnic conflicts in general are very confusing and hard to understand from the outsider perspective, which obviously we inhabit and. 
Peter Kemp was obviously the outsider in this case. Mm-hmm. It's it's just super hard and convoluted to try to uh, make any sense of it. That's that's one big takeaway. The other one is this was my takeaway. My and this is your takeaway. Uh, World War Two is often portrayed as this kind of. You know, you know, and this is more sort of a casualty of popular culture and kind of, to some extent, sort of overdone popular history as well as this, you know, big war. And it, it's just like the movies. It's always the Americans or the Brits versus the Germans or the Americans versus the Japanese uh, or the Amer- or the Germans versus the Russians. And it's all this one big war where there's two sides. And in a lot of places, that's it's not that clean cut. In a lot of places like Albania... There's a hell of a lot of mess on the ground. You're not sure who's allies, who's Axis. You're not sure, you know, sometimes they're both or neither. And for a lot of smaller countries, World War II is, it's not this sort of giant sort of Star Wars kind of conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's a very messy local affair that f- um, figures into a bunch of things. And the Balkans, I think, is the perfect example of that. Uh, and I think there, there's a lesson to be had that when looking at more modern conflicts like Afghanistan, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, that, you know, it doesn't always it doesn't always boil down to just one side versus the other. There's a lot of local stuff you have to acknowledge. And if you don't know what you're jumping into, like Kemp did quite literally... You might not get the uh, pun intended. Yeah, pun intended. You might not get the uh, the goal you're trying to achieve if you don't understand what it's like on the ground. Because, as you said, you know, Brits couldn't understand Albanians because they're just it's not they're not Albanian. It's not. Yeah. It's a f- completely different culture and situation for them. Also, I guess the last takeaway: communism sucks. Yeah, that's 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 a fairly no big theme. To communism, but that's a fairly big that's a fairly big theme of the book is yeah, communism yeah, it's sucks. Just, it's just the like these communist regimes that but basically the, all the Soviet satellite states. A lot of the individuals that came to power in the Soviet satellite states were huge opportunists, and I don't know if they. They didn't seem to be very committed Marxist line. They're just opportunists that decided, "Hey, I'm going to take this chaos and roll with it." And that's that's how we have the establishment of the Iron Curtain. It was opportunists. It wasn't activists, so to speak. It wasn't true believers, really. It was. It was well, you could argue some people would make that argument towards Lenin and Trotsky too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like yeah, you yeah, with yeah. the Kronstadt rebellion yeah. and yeah. the left SRs and how they were treated by the Bolsheviks. Okay, nerd. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll end off here with a little um, excerpt from actually Peter Kemp's obituary because he passed away day before Halloween in 1993. Uh, it, it, this, it, I figured it'd be fitting to end it here. We, we might, are we going to cover his next book? We certainly are. At some point in the yes. new year. Yeah. Next year. Next mm-hmm. year. We're, we're this is the last of, episode of yeah, uh, yeah. 2021. Yes, so we're um, we are probably going to cover his next book, and we will fucking we'll finish off this. I don't know why I said I will fucking. <laughs> so we'll probably cover off his next book and finish the rest of this obituary. But uh, we figured you know it'd be kind of fitting to read it because it just goes over everything again and. 
and brings us to the point uh, where we will be in the story next time around. Peter Mant McIntyre Kemp, soldier and writer, born Bombay 19th of August 1915, MC 1941, DSO 1945, died in London 30th of October 1993. Peter Kemp was a distinguished irregular soldier during the Second World War and long retained his nose for trouble spots thereafter. His father was a judge in Bombay, where he was born. After conventional education at Wellington and Trinity, Cambridge, he started to read for the bar, but was called away by the outbreak of civil war in Spain. Already alarmed at the menace of communism, he joined a Carlist unit in General Franco's forces in November 1936 and later transferred to the Spanish Foreign Legion, in which rare distinction for a non-Spaniard, he commanded a platoon. He was several times wounded, but stayed at duty till a mortared bomb broke his jaw in the summer of 1938. He had barely recovered from this wound when a chance meeting with Sir Douglas Dodds Parker brought him into MIR, a small research department of the War Office, which was one of the starting components of the wartime special operations executive. MIR sent him on an abortive expedition to Norway by submarine. He's one of the earliest pupils at the Combined Operations Training School at Lokaliort on the shores of the Western Highlands, sailed in intensive discomfort to Gibraltar in the hold of that dubious craft HMS Fidelity, and went on another abortive submarine voyage in pursuit of a German U-boat. This aborted because a British destroyer attacked the submarine carrying Kemp by mistake. The Operation SOE had planned for him in Spain was cancelled. He returned to the United Kingdom for further training in parachuting, sabotage, and undercover tactics. With a small-scale raiding force, he took part in a few cross-channel commando raids, including a successful one which captured all seven of the crew of the Casquette's lighthouse, one of them still wearing a hairnet. When the force closed down after its leader's death in action, he went out to Cairo and was absorbed into SOE's Albanian section. He spent ten months clandestinely in Albania, many of them in disagreeable problem. Uh, proximity to Enver Hoxha, the communist leader. He had several close brushes with death and found the complexities of Balkan politics intensely confusing in a many-sided war. Eventually walked out on into Montenegro across the border with Yugoslavia and was safely brought back to Cairo. He did one more mission for SOE in Europe into southern Poland at the end of 1944 in a party commanded by Colonel D.T. Hudson, who had been a leading SOE agent in Yugoslavia. Their Polish friends protected them from capture by the Germans. They were then overrun by the Red Army and imprisoned in odious conditions for three weeks by the NKVD. Two months hanging about in Moscow waiting for an exit visa followed. So that's where we are in the story right now in Peter Kemp's life. Yes. Hell of a story. And obviously we couldn't touch on every little detail in the podcast, including the friendly fire incident with a submarine. And yeah. just like the submarine conditions, the super cool. Um, I wanted to focus more on like the... 6-2 Commando, because that's just kind of... That's stuff I had to look up, really, to understand what Kemp was getting at. The stuff in the submarine will speak for itself. So uh, definitely something to look up in this book, and, and just just like a lot of the books we cover, this one is kind of a lost classic, so uh-huh. definitely consider rediscovering it for yourself. Yes, and actually you can get... Uh, I believe that the publishers, Mr. Grove, have... Um, released all three of the Kemp trilogy in one book now, so if you're wanting to uh, save yourself some money that way, that's probably a good investment. It'll be a long read. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It'll take you across the world, quite literally. Quite literally. We are going to go to the Far East next with Kemp. Yes, yeah. It's, yeah, no, it's 
<laughs> he had quite the life. Yep. There you go. Men Among Men stories. And speaking of men among men, you too can emphasize how much of a man among men you are with a new Man Among Men patch, which is available at the manamongmenstories.com or manamongmenstories.com website. You have a Christmas bundle offer right now where, you, where you're actually offering a Rhodesian uh, Broadcasting Corporation hat. Mm-hmm. And you, two patches for and, and 35 Canadian dollars. And right now... Bindu ships it himself, too. He yes. kisses every package. I do kiss every package. And right now... You can request he wears lipstick. <laughs> Don't give them ideas. Anyway. And right now there's actually a 12 Days of Christmas special. So... We're recording this on the 14th, yeah. so you're probably listening to this on the 17th or 18th or whatever. Yes, it will end... In a few days. It will... No, no, no. It'll end at midnight on the 24th. So in a few days, literally. In like four days from when you're probably listening to this. Yes. So, uh, but yes, uh, 15% discount until then on all orders, including the bundle order. So yeah, we really appreciate that, guys. Also, please check out our subscribe star, everything you... Send our way helps us uh, helps us with this podcast and securing more and more books for us to cover and uh, books, coffee, and books, coffee, bayonets, bayonets, food, and you know occasionally bringing a guest on. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we have some really cool episodes primed for the new year. So stick around for those. So so so. I also have a business, and I'm going to plug it, because I also have a Christmas sale, and mine's better. You can get 15% off, absolutely, on my website, too, at www.fireforceadventures.com if you like all things militaria. I sell everything from Rhodesian stuff to actually a few Slavic, Balkan, Yugoslav war things. All kinds of cool militaria on my website. But if you're a member of my Buyers Club, which also gets early access to this podcast, uh, among a bunch of other cool benefits, including a 5% discount, you can actually take 20% off your next order with Fire Force Ventures if you are the me- a member of our Buyers Club. Again, until the 24th, just like Bindu's sale, except mine's better. You can get 20% off if you're Buyers Club. So definitely check that out. I just got to one-up you all the time. So I'm giving people more of a discount. I'm one-upping, I'm one-upping you by losing money. <laughs> I'm so smart. Also, we would like to always uh, thank our good friends at Commando Blog, who are doing a lot of interesting things in the near future. They're very interesting things. Very interesting. We wish we could talk about and Maybe we will one day. Maybe we will one day. Uh, but in the meantime, they, you may be listening to us um, on their website. They are a great place for guns, militaria, outdoor living, gear, and all that fun stuff. And also, um, good thanks to the folks at uh, Mystery Grove for publishing this book. It's yeah, Lost Classic. Lost Classic. The Peter Kemp trilogy from them we highly recommend. Um, and as well, Also, I, I need to do another a big thank you to everybody that had uh, supported our efforts with the Veteran Transition Network on the last podcast. We sold a lot of those poster prints of the poem signed by Larry Jenkins. <clears throat> I still have a few more available. So if you like those, those are also available at fireforceventures.com. Still, a vast majority of the profits are going to the Veteran Transition Network. And the on, actually the only 
prophets that aren't are those that go into literally the creation of the yeah, posters. The creation yeah, of the we're, we're, you are not making money on this. No, I am not. And as always, we thank our uh, military personnel, veterans, police, first responders, firefighters who are listening. Uh, thanks for being there, guys, and creating a world where we can sit here and read really weird books about really weird parts of military history. So, uh, for the second last time this year, Bindu. So, pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas.